What the Actual Fork podcast is co-hosted by two intuitive eating registered dietitians, yours truly, Sammy Previtt, owner of Fine Food Freedom, and Jenna Warner, owner of Happy Strong Healthy. We can't stand diet culture bullshit and love keeping it real. Our mission is for all humans to believe that they are made for so much more than chasing a smaller body. We are also here to share with you that food can be fun and pleasurable again. Although we are medical professionals, we are human beings too. We are not afraid to share our deepest, darkest secrets and how many years of our lives were taken by diet culture. We started this podcast so no human has to feel alone in their journey towards food freedom. So get comfy and join us for a casual combo where you can expect to laugh, cry, learn, and grow. We are so grateful that you're here. So if you enjoy this podcast and want to connect further, we invite you to follow along on Instagram at what the actual fork pod and subscribe, rate and review our podcast so we can continue to share this message with more and more people. Now let's get into it. Welcome back to another episode of what the actual fork podcast. Super excited to be here today, always, but especially today. Sam, how are you? I'm good. I mean, <laughs> you, you hear how I am. I like, I'm just <laughs> laughing. Um, I actually, funny, I led a one hour training this morning. I thought you were on like vocal rest. I was, <laughs> but like, yeah. Um, and I, it was like the hardest one hour of my life. If you can hear me, which anyone listening can, you, I'm sick. Um, you sick? What? Why us? Never. <laughs> um, but I did have friends in town over the weekend, and I don't want to steal your what the actual fork moment or lack thereof. But I've also so you shared with me. Fuck it, I'm gonna spoiler alert that you've been off TikTok for like a week. I'm I had just girl- basically boycotting it. But there you go. <laughs> well, I had girlfriends in town and I was just like really challenging myself to be present. Like I didn't prep content ahead of time, you know, whatever. Um, And yeah, I've been off of it. So like, it's been so nice. It makes me wonder, like, do I ever I- want to go back? Right. Well, I don't have a what the actual fork moment because I'm not on TikTok. However, I would say, or I will say, I did go on to like, check and see like searching like wellness or like just like trends of the week or whatever it is and like nothing came up like and I'm like my FYP is all like very depressing things and I'm like maybe I just don't need to be on here anymore like I I don't know what's going viral after like the two weeks ago with that dream body bullshit um like that was a big fat mess but the I, I don't know I I I don't see anything like going, I don't know, after Gwyneth, it's like, we have nothing left to talk about. (laughs) Well, we have nothing left to like dispute, right? But I think that's where (laughs) we come on to hopefully share the messages that people need to hear. My FYP has been like all the CEO of TikTok and all the TikTok banning coverage. I made one of those. That's been (laughs) very interesting to just like sit back and listen and learn and to see how he was treated and the questions they were asking him and just a lot of bullshit running around. Um, I don't know. I, yeah, I question. I didn't watch any of the hearings. Did you? I watched clips on 
like TikTok basically, right. Mm -hmm. Of like clips of it. And just the way that they were speaking to him and talking down to him. They didn't even, some of them didn't even know how to pronounce TikTok. Like it was like so embarrassing. And like, I heard that Instagram or meta or whatever Instagram, Facebook is, is like one of the people like lobbying against TikTok. Which I think is just like like no shit, right? Because but like everyone's on that platform. That much pull, right? Like it's just so wild. And with all of the changes, I don't know if our listeners are like as plugged into the social media space as we are, but like changes that have happened in Instagram over the past two weeks, besides all of this, is like they took away creator bonuses. So like to post videos on Instagram, like you were eligible to like, from like a pool of money to like make a little bit of money, like as content creators, like, you know, you get, you could make a little money posting your videos and sharing your content with people. And like, I thought that was super helpful. I was making like a hundred dollars, but it was like awesome. Right. I don't, I don't think I ever knew about that. So thank you for telling me because I was well, not gone. a part of it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess I can't miss what I never started. Well, you probably would have made a lot more, but now they've taken that away and now they're monetizing the blue check mark. So now you can pay, you can be on a wait list to be eligible to pay to become verified. So now, and I think about this from a listener perspective and from like just a content consumer perspective, the blue check mark who knows like what it actually meant, but to some level it meant like this person has done some amount of work or has been recognized for their work in their field. Right. Like, or they're you know, famous, they, right? Like, or they're all the famous, people on, like right. the bachelor would get it. So I'm like, right. so, like what work did they do? Right. That's a good point. But like, I'm thinking like from like a nutrition perspective or from like, you know, whatever, Yeah. like, you could Google their name and like find their work and whatever. And now anybody can have a blue check mark. Like anybody. Yeah. You better believe my ass is like, how do I get one? (laughs) Really? (laughs) See, I'm like, well, fuck it. If anyone can pay for it, then who gives a shit? I know. It's just so interesting. Cause so now I'm seeing like a ton of people that I follow. I'm like, wow, you're verified. You're verified. You're verified. (laughs) Like, it's just very interesting. It's very political. It's very. Well, that's what, yeah, the TikTok ban, I feel like is becoming political. I don't know a ton about it, but I did watch a few videos of people saying how like, I guess like if you combine millennials and Gen Z, if you look at the polls, like from the past election, if you put us together, like we showed up the most Mm. and we are basically like the majority of the 150 million on TikTok. So it's like, how do we stop the spread of them? Like coming together basically is what I've been seeing of like, that's where Congress is like wants TikTok shut down. Cause it's like, if you think about the messages, think about how much you've learned, think about how much your perspective has changed or like creators that you followed or like think about how many people we've touched where they're like, I've never heard of intuitive eating or food freedom or like anything that you've talked about until our TikTok videos. So it's so interesting to think um, like if the, if the government truly just wants to like control the messaging that's being, because, because it's not the media, right? I don't like, well, all of those videos are repurposed on Instagram or YouTube. Like, I don't get it. It's that's like what confuses me because I think the reach potential on TikTok is astronomical. Like there's no, like people don't reach the same audience on TikTok or on Instagram as they do on TikTok. Like absolutely for sure. 
but there is the potential to reach a large audience and like the same harmful messaging is spread on Instagram too. So like, it's just like, where is it all going? So if all social media goes away, please listeners continue to listen to us on the What the Actual Fork podcast and connect with us through our email list and all of the things, because I had a business coach tell me once, like, you don't own your social media. And like, he was right. And it's becoming more and more clear. And I was thinking about it the other day, like if TikTok goes away, I don't have all of my videos like backed up. (laughs) So like, peace out. Yeah. Content of three years. (laughs) Like, yeah. Right. No, it's crazy to think about. It it really is. And yeah, it's like, the more it, it help, I feel like the potential ban, although I'm not for it, like I really do think it is a little bit of the government trying to like control our brains, but um, it is like a good way to stop and like reflect. We talk about all the time, like our mm-hmm. relationship with social media, like what is your relationship to social media? What is your relationship to your following and the numbers because and the metrics and all of those things and like mine's not healthy. (laughs) I've definitely gone through ebbs and flows, but I totally agree with you. Like we don't own our followings. Like it's a privilege to get in front of these numbers and these people and and be able to say what we want to say. And it would suck if it went away. Um but like life would go on. Totally, which we talked about I think last week recording which would be that episode will be out before this one is. And like, yeah, like life continues, whether you're, whether you open the app or not. Um, I actually had a conversation with a friend about like apps to use to like, to really like shut off your social media time. Um, and I think there are a few, I haven't downloaded them yet, but like there's ways that you can protect your mental health from that. And I, I do find that the weekends I'm a lot more, calm mm-hmm. and like I'm sure there's many reasons why but like a lot of it is is that I'm not posting on social what well, did um, you see what Gen Z is doing now I don't mm-hmm. know why I'm on Gen Z TikTok but they all are bringing the flip phones back but like the razors they're out I loved I think I still have mine somewhere <laughs> like, they I saw I a TikTok a take, those are the phones that they're taking out to the bar and it's because they're like this is just like, if I lose it, like I buy another one and it's like not, you know, you don't have to go buy like another $1,000 iPhone, like, or who can afford that. And, and so they're all just like going out and they're like, and they're like, oh, what, what did I forget the one girl that I follow? But she was like talking about how when you take a picture, the pictures are perfect. Cause they're edgy and purpley and light, like blurry. And she was like, it's exactly what you picture when you're out. And I'm like, this is hilarious, but it's <laughs> like, Thank you for bringing back the razors, Gen Z. We we knew what was up. I went on my Facebook the other day and there's like, I have hidden albums from college because like I was the girl that brought her Canon uh, oh, camera, right? Same. Out at Penn State bars. And I'm like, the shit that I have on here like, is just so wild. Like they're all like a hidden private photo albums. But like I uploaded an album after like every night out. <laughs> like, Same. so wild like every semester I would say like I added photos to an album we should share like every day we should just text each other a picture like from one of our albums 
done. You it would die. be a great way to giggle. My we can even start posting those on our what the actual pork podcast page. If you guys want to see them, you just let us know. If you want to see how far we've really come, <laughs> then let's do it. But yeah. speaking but so- of growth. Yes. So know what the actual fork moments of the week. Sorry to disappoint. We will come back with more promise. Um, but we had an amazing guest today. Yes. We had the Jessica Wilson MSRD on the podcast, who is the co-creator of Amplify Melanated Voices Challenge that went viral back in 2020. She's a clinical dietitian, a consultant, an author whose experiences navigating the dietetics field as a Black queer dietitian have been featured on public radio shows and print media, including the New York times and bustle. Jessica has worked as a clinical dietitian since 2007 and is acutely aware of how both the public health and medical framing of the air quotes, healthy eating and air quotes, obesity has contributed to disordered eating and self-blame. She speaks openly and candidly about the harm caused to people by designating individual identities and bodies as risk factors rather than targeting the structural inequities and violence that marginalized individuals must endure and which contribute to whether we fall into the social construction of health. She organizes and energizes communities, both small and large, and is the leader in the conversation to deconstruct the narratives we have all been told about our bodies. Her book, It's Always Been Ours, written, rewriting the story of Black women's bodies will be published or is published, was published on February 7th, 2023 um, in hardcover, audio, and ebook. And we talk a lot about just like I don't even know how, how would you describe what we talk about today? We talk about wellness and like a whole different conversation. Yeah. We definitely took the conversation a a bunch of different ways. And like, I think you mentioned on the podcast, we just were like rapid firing at Jessica and just, we had a whole list. (laughs) Yeah. Just picking her brain like crazy because she's such a gem in the field. I forget. Do you even remember what the stat is? Is it like 2% of dietitians are black? I would say that's like a generous stat. I, I yeah. think it, I, 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 and I think that was from like 2020. So we'll have to fact check that. But, you know, we get into how eating disorders can serve a different purpose in black women. And I feel like this is a great compliment to, we did the episode with Sharon Maxwell on like mm. fat bodies can have eating disorders too. And I feel like this is like black bodies can have eating disorders too. And because yeah, you just think of what, what is so stereotyped as an eating disorder in our culture and how Jessica just did a great job of really bringing to light so much, um, in the BIPOC communities. Yeah, it was so, so, so powerful. And her book clearly shares a lot more on this topic. And she tells a lot about her book and the stories inside it, inside this episode as well. Um, and it was just really just, an incredible conversation. Some different perspectives were shared. Um, she talks a lot about her practice and the people that she works with. Um, and the quote that I, I texted Sam earlier today, we got to talk about her quote of how identity is a risk factor. And I think we can leave you with that to get you into this episode, just thinking about what that means. Um, and she describes it incredibly in the episode. So do you have anything else to add before I say your line? No, I'm going to say it. Let's get into it. I'm super excited. Let's get into it.
This month is a wild month of travel for the What the Actual Fork Girlies. So I gave AG1 a try from Athletic Greens because, as we talk about a lot on this pod, our children are very <gasps> sick. And with <laughs> sick children, mine in daycare, yours is just a toddler, so he's going to be sick from touching everything. Licks everything. Everything. Um, I just, and then with traveling, like I was in New York city this week, I was just like, I need something easy to travel with that can give me nutrient density, vitamins, minerals, all of the things. Um, and AG one does that wonderfully with their travel packs. Their travel packs are the cutest, perfect little thing. You just mix it with water, drink it down. So every day in New York city, I took my AG one and it was chef's kiss perfection. I'm super excited to bring them with me. I'm actually traveling um, towards the end of this month, and we are going away on a longer flight. Um, and when I travel, definitely the pre-probiotic aspect is super important just for overall regularity, if you will. Um, and so I'm super happy and excited to bring the AG1 packets with me because, like you've already said, it has all your key health products like multivitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more all working working together as one in that perfect little packet. So with that said, if you want to give them a try and if you have travel coming up anytime soon, today would be a great time to start and go check them out. So Athletic Greens is gifting you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five of those travel packs that we just talked about for free with your first purchase. So head on over to athleticgreens.com forward slash fork. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash fork and go check it out. We are so excited today to have Jessica Wilson on the pod. Jessica, thank you so much for being here with us. Um, so sure. to start, no, thanks for having me. <laughs> so to start and kick off each episode, Sam and I always love to ask our guests if you have a moment that you would categorize as your what the actual fork moment that has stopped you in your tracks. Maybe it's this week, it's only Tuesday, maybe it's this month, this year thus far, um, as it pertains to the the diet culture around us anything that you've seen come up that has really been like a a mind blow for you recently can you remind me if the american academy of pediatric guidelines came out this year or last year oh they was sure did was it this it was, this it was january right yeah yes okay <laughs> they count <laughs> those ones then for sure <sighs> I love that. I think since those came out, we have yet to have one guest that hasn't chosen that as their answer. Oh, especially dietitians, <laughs> which is, which is okay. No, but I think that's amazing because I think that just shows like it showcases across the board how many of us were like, what the actual fuck is this? Mm -hmm. You know what? I didn't actually even realize too. And I, I believe it was. Jessica, you in a previous interview, um, had stated something just about like interventions with a two-year-old and like I have a two-year-old right now like that just kind of re-solidified like how fucked up these recommendations are um it's just it blows my mind but anyways instead of talking about that let's learn more about you <laughs> unless you want to add any more to it we absolutely have time for it but we no it sounds like you hear. all have probably discussed you're good <laughs> we would love to hear more about you who you are personally professionally and how you got to be 
this incredible author and clinician and registered dietitian that you are today? Personal, professional. <laughs> like, or wherever we it goes. <laughs> we're, we're just going to start at the beginning. Uh, no, we'll start at the end. I am, I've been a dietitian since 2006. I feel like I'm real getting old and eating disorder dietitian since 2009 because I started college health because I was very excited to work with people who wanted to eat food. And then you're working in college and nobody's going to college. Uh, so I had to start working with folks with eating disorders um, and then have been enjoying it and doing it ever since. Currently, I am at Lion Martin Health Services as their dietitian there, um, working mostly with queer and trans folks, folks of color who may also be queer and trans, and also folks in poverty who also may be people of color and queer and trans. Um, so that's the bulk of my clinical practice outside of Author Town, which is where I'm at right now with my new book, It's Always Been Ours. Um, so that's professionally where I am. Personally, for those who are listening via the audios, I am a queer black dietitian and I always, you know, preface conversations that are going to be about, you know, perhaps health or however it goes that I have a chronic illness that has, I have epilepsy that requires me right now to take one, two, three, four, 10 pill, one, two, three, four, 12 a day. I don't know. We just started some new ones. Uh, so that always comes up in context of like dietitian assumptions of quote lifestyle changes. So you don't have to take medication. Um, those are important. And uh, professionally, I ended up as a dietitian and I didn't really even realize this was intertwined, but I mean, it'll make sense at the end. As a kid, I was always trending at the top of the growth chart, which I always say as a kid, that looks like you're winning. Who doesn't want to be at the top? Nobody wants to be middle, bottom, uh, at the top looked like the best. Uh, so I never thought that was a problem, but everybody around me did. Um, and so I was sent to like an endocrinologist to like figure out why it was big. And turns out I was just a big kid, but, um, so I was sent to the dietitian at age six and her name was Sue. I don't remember. I don't even know how long it lasted, but I know like from, I just found the chart note and, you know, she took down what I ate and I don't know if I told her that or if my mom told her that, which is really interesting if they were asking like a six-year-old to do like a diet recall, uh, which really could have been the case um, because I was the one sitting in the chair and, you know, at the end it was like eat less, exercise more and, you know, the specific recommendations you remember when you're six are like completely like out of context. I remember saying like, never eat more than two slices of pizza, uh, or just like real random stuff. And then, you know, from age six to age 10, you know, that was like the moment where I started thinking about my body as a problem. I was already a black kid in super white schools. So that was another reason that I, you know, was a problem or different than everybody else. And then, so from 10 and older, I wouldn't say that I was hyper-focused on my way. I would say it was fairly insulated, um, just like friend-wise. I wasn't really isolated as a kid. Um, so I don't think that I was really as much prone to say to an eating disorder than other folks who are less, you know, socially and like mentally uh, supported in other ways 
But of course I was always hyper-focused on my weight. And you know, like how people will say now, I look back and thought I was overweight at whatever age it was. And you look back and you're like, oh, that was not true. (laughs) Not true at all. Um, But of course that's like subjective when your brain hasn't fully developed. (laughs) But in junior year, I guess, or maybe senior year, somebody was like, yeah, you can become, you can, you know, work as a dietitian. And for whatever reason that made sense for where I was at, I was also thinking about becoming a therapist, but that then and now seemed like a lot of work. (laughs) So I didn't want to do that, but getting to talk to people about food all day and really it was the nineties. So of course it was like the no fat days and, you know, the snack rolls and whatever it was. So I'm sure like me thinking that I would tell people how to eat right quote, um, as a dietitian played into that. And that lasted until... I was 23, I want to say, maybe. You said so many words that you just shared that like sparked core memories for me, like specifically a Mm. dietitian named Sue. (laughs) I I feel like in my internship and like every clinical job (laughs) I had prior to becoming a private practice, there was always a dietitian named Sue. (laughs) That's fair. Actually, I am... Oh, that's actually a great uh, touchstone. I need to look back in my scholastic history for that. I can picture her too, like the preceptor one specifically. Um, And also snack wells. Like I have the specific memory of that green bag. They were always in my house. Um, And I just add my director (laughs) of my dietetic internship. Her name was Karen. And she lived up like to the culture of like what Karen culture has become too. But I feel like Sue and Karen were like, thriving RDs back in the day. Um, (laughs) So, but thank you for sharing all of that with us, Jessica. Sure. Sam, I saw you unmute. So you hit it off with your next question. Well, so I don't want to, I don't want to jump ahead of you, Jenna, because I know you did too, but I, while you were speaking, Jessica, I, I couldn't help but think we just had Sharon Maxwell on the podcast not too long ago, and, and we did a whole episode on how fat bodies can have eating disorders too. And as three eating disorder dietitians on this podcast, I think we have a pretty good idea of how, when we look at the medical field, specifically doctors or health professionals, how they view what eat, I'm going to use heavy air quotes, like what eating disorders look like. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, So I would love if you can speak on at all, just how eating disorders can serve a different purpose in black women and just how it's different because the world views eating disorders as, oh, it it can only be a thin white woman who's emaciated and, you know, looks like they're starving air quotes. Um, So anything that you can just share and speak on specifically to with just your work as a clinician and how you meet with so many um, that don't air quotes look the part of an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, I think the easiest answer to that one is that folks just don't see themselves as ever having anything close to disordered eating or an eating disorder um, because it just doesn't apply. It's not even that, oh, that happens to somebody else. It's not even anything that I think about, like, oh, maybe I have an eating disorder, but I don't. It's like completely like over their head. I speak of Lexi in the book and it wasn't until you know, I told her like, maybe just broccoli isn't a dinner. (laughs) Like, 
what? Like, I'm, I'm confused about this. And, you know, and we talked about eating disorder and disordered eating. And she's like, no, it's not about being thin. Like, that's not what I'm interested in. And I see that with another client, um, Mia in the book as well, that the, you know, let's see, the characterization of eating disorders is like a quest for thinness typically and how we talk about things and how we talk about diet culture, like the thin ideal or whatever it is like that to my clients has never been like the driving force for why they are starving. Um, for Lexi, particularly as a gymnast, um, and being literally judged, um, by folks, it was like a great tool. Starvation was a great tool, um, to make her body smaller, but also, you know, less quote muscular or less quote powerful, um, to be seen as more like elegant as the other gymnasts. Um, and so, yeah, that was working. She never thought that like diet pills, laxatives, you know, throwing up whatever, like it would be a problem because <laughs> it was also, it was men winning end of story, like never was disordered. Um, and then other clients as well, um, just generally in our culture where black women are too much or always hyper visible, you know, like shrinking can like help that just a bit. Granted, it's never going to solve it. But for people who are overwhelmed and uncomfortable by our presence and like think of us as too much, like becoming less. And especially like as I might be going through that, you know, in one's presence, it like people are showing that I'm trying to conform. You know, you might get that positive feedback um, type of stuff happening. So that's just like two very specific examples, but generally and overall, um, yeah, I find that starvation serves much different purposes. And for a lot of my trans mask folks as well. So preventing, you know, larger hips or breast development, stuff like that. Um, and also not seeing that as like quest for the thin ideal or beauty ideals. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself is a lifelong process. <laughs> I feel like we talk about that a lot with like the intuitive eating journey. I love when you and say that. For me, going to therapy, it's not only like getting to know yourself, but it's like relearning who you are. And like we're mm -hmm. always changing, we're always growing, we're always evolving. And so for me, therapy has been just such a time to almost be like this neutral observer of myself. Now, not that I'm always neutral because I'm crying a lot in therapy, but to see like, what are the belief systems that I've been taught and how do I challenge these and what do, what do I want them to be? So what was I taught? What do I want them to be? And how do I get there? And hmm. I wish it were like a five-step process and super easy, but I feel like that's such a parallel to the intuitive eating work that we do, but I find in therapy, I'm doing that a lot is outside of food and body challenging the belief systems that I've been taught in life. And, Oh, it's hard. It is. It's a journey, itself. but it's challenging, yeah. challenging and rewarding. I think something that we talk about a lot and that we've talked about recently a lot is, you know, when you open up and share something with a friend you know, their immediate reaction is to try and say something to make you feel better, right? And so, and that's great for them because they're your friends and they, they don't want to see you upset. But a huge selling point for therapy for me and something that I, I find really, really compelling and important is the ability to share 
my deepest feelings and emotions and thoughts with a person that has no biases towards me and is coming from a completely neutral space. Like my mom's always going to say something to make me feel good. My therapist is not. (laughs) And that's a really good thing. Um, And it's super important. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, something that's incredible about BetterHelp is that it's entirely online. So it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule, um, which is super important in the busy world that we live in today. So I couldn't recommend it more. I know you also agree, Sam. So we would love for you to discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash fork to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash fork. You have a great Instagram post about this topic as well. And there's a picture on it that it's like a, a picture of, I'm sure you know it better than me, but it's a screenshot of like a zoom webinar and it looks like the cast of Laguna beach going to prom. Like, I don't, I don't know exactly who it is, but that's what it reminds me of. Right. Yeah. Something along those lines. And the title on the top of it says that this is not why black women develop eating disorders. And I think that Mm -hmm. says everything. Um, And in that post too, you referenced that it can't be a best practice, quote unquote, if the research didn't include black women. Can we talk more about the research that is available um, in the eating disorder space today and what's not? Sure. Um, I think the, well, not, I think everything that we use is quote, best practice and evidence-based, right? Um, And people will push back on anything that isn't grounded in science, but Black women, women of color, queer and trans folks just aren't in any of the like formative research. They aren't in any FBT, (laughs) uh, family-based therapy. They aren't in any of the, you know, evidence that is, that was part of the systems that created our best practice. Uh, When I looked, um, especially like when there was black folks or women of color or however it goes, um, it was always like in comparison, you know, like, so the standard is white women. And if we're looking at anybody else, it is always in comparison. So how does their, you know, prevalence of eating disorders, which of course folks don't have in quotation marks because, you know, they are not thin in weight. Um, but how do those ones who actually, you know, identify and have been, you know, diagnosed, how do they compare to the standard type of deal? And so then I found like nine research studies and they were heavily like binge and bulimia oriented only and not actually anorexia because again, why would black folks have anorexia? Thank you for sharing all of that. And so is this, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about your book of, and of course you don't have to give it away for our listeners because we want them to go read it and we're going to hear all about it. But is, was that a driving factor for your book of being able to share your lived experiences and then your experiences of your clients? Because what I'm hearing you say is like, there's not much out there for Mm -hmm. people with eating disorders that don't look like the ideal, whether that's their, their race, their size, et cetera. I did not think it would be as much about eating disorders and clinical work when I initially started, I was quite surprised. Um, so I always say that I did not set out to write a book. I was asked to write it, uh, by a publisher and 
I said no multiple times as you know, you get into the book. I don't like working seven days a week. It's really not my jam. Um, but at the time also I had told a friend like what, if I could reach more than just like these one-on-one visits, like that would make it worth it. And I was thinking more about my clients whose BMI is above, um, 25 initially. And just how, you know, we talk about fatter folks in society and eating disorders. Um, and then it really became more about like that safety and survival that everyone, um, who is not the norm for someone with an eating disorder might find, um, by shrinking themselves. So it turned out that like clinicians and, uh, like people with lived experience with eating disorders are the ones that are more called to the book and even researchers, um, and I was, you know, expecting it would be just like a general population read. But yes, it seems like it is hit home for clinicians, which has been like an added benefit of the book. I, I don't know if that you... answered your question. No, absolutely. <laughs> I heard you quote on um the name of the podcast is here, the Full Plate podcast with Abby Atwood. That was Abby Atwood. That was an amazing interview. And I heard you quote that the publisher maybe stated that if but you have an Instagram, so it's just like writing an Instagram. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How did that <Lies>. compare? <laughs> it was terrible. I did like in theory, it was a creative process, but Indeed, I am very brief. You know, any interview I've been in, like job interview, it's done in 30 minutes when it's supposed to take half half an hour. (laughs) I feel like my thoughts are very fine for social media because they're short. Like, it's very clear. It's very direct. Like, here's the information. But then, like, weaving in a lot more words is actually what it felt like at first. I'm like, I'm just adding words to thoughts. But then it became more storytelling, which, you know, in the end turned out to be very fun. But the expectations of just turning Instagram into a 65,000 word (laughs) book was very false. It was very untrue. That cracked me up. And in that interview, I was texting Sammy while I was listening to it. And I was like, we cannot forget to talk about this quote. And in the interview, you talked about, um, I believe it was in the connection of like the whiteness of wellness, um, how identity is a risk factor for people when they go into the doctor's office or really any space. Can we talk more just about what that powerful statement means? Sure. So uh, in fatness and queerness, uh, trans identity and um, uh, for other folks, many other folks, when we go to the doctor, like people see either in our chart or on our bodies, like these identities. And because, you know, in quote, the research, there are associations between like black folks and, you know, diabetes or high blood pressure. Like it's like inherently, you know, we have to think about death sooner because we're told because we're black, like we're going to get all these things and we're inherently unhealthy. So let's start quote, preventing all of these things now, AKA lose weight or like just pay attention to things that other people are just never told about. So inherently, you know, and for fat folks, especially because we're able to diagnose their identity, you know, which is their weight um, on like in a chart. And then, you know, we've, you know, penalized and pathologized someone for like who they are when they 
like step in the door. Like <laughs> we diagnose a person rather than anything else that happens to be going on with them. Mm, so well said. And I feel like a, a good example of this, a very public example of this, you did an amazing post a few days ago, um, basically like Gwyneth Paltrow versus Lizzo. And you called it a tale of two detoxes, which is such <laughs> yeah. a freaking amazing caption. It's and a writer's were, caption, just yes, for the record. Yes, you are an author, um, <laughs> as you, you already know that. But like your writing is really paying off because it's amazing. Um, and in the <laughs> caption you wrote, apparently Lizzo was doing body positivity the wrong way. And I, I want to let you take over because I thought you did such a beautiful job. Can you just explain to our listeners like what you were comparing and how the reactions of the public and the media and the comments and everything is just so different for Gwyneth versus Lizzo. Sure. Do you two remember like the smoothie fiasco? Oh, yes. (laughs) It was wild. Um, So Lizzo was very clear, like ate a bunch of stuff that she said fucked up her stomach um, and didn't feel great. And and as, you know, influences are like they're often approached. I don't know, actually have no idea how Lizzo came to this information at all. Um, But was like, hey, this quote detox for your stomach um, is supposed to make me feel better. And, you know, I'm just going to try it. And so she did like the smoothie diet, which everybody then in the field, the body positive communities was like, this, these are smoothie detoxes, which, you know, was called a detox, but we're like making all assumptions about how there was, it was basically like nothing in water and not talking about, you know, it was smoothies, you know, three times a day, plus apples and peanut butter and protein bars and eggs and all of this stuff that, you know, Sounds like food, um, but yeah, people had meltdowns, like absolutely, because they had looked up to Lizzo for all of their like personal feelings about their body. And if Lizzo could feel good about her body, you know, then I could feel better about mine because this goes into the like, she's so brave narratives too about fat folks, especially black fat folks. It's like, oh, how would you, you know, have the confidence to XYZ thing? Um, same same story. Like if Lizzo feels like she can, then I can feel better about my body business. And because Lizzo like, and the assumption also was that Lizzo was trying to lose weight when she very clearly said like, I feel like garbage. Let me try this random thing. Um, and the, yeah, the response, even after she said, you know, after she had done, she'd give like this tearful reply. Like you all are just going to assume that fat people are doing this for weight loss when I said clearly I wasn't. But then Gwyneth, of course, is on her ice cubes and bone broth diet um, for long COVID, for anti-inflammation, um, vegetables, maybe a meat and coffee and bone broth. Which and an IV. Is- I was going to say, can't forget the IV. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, which apparently she was like using during the interview or whatever. Yes. She was like, I just got off the plane. So like I need these, she called them good old vitamins and minerals through the IV. I'm like, or we could eat, but. Mm-hmm. Right. But no, why, why would we get that through food? Wild. Yes. And so she's doing all of this and nobody's having the panic attack. Um, People are saying, you know, it's disordered, but nobody's having a meltdown because it's not personal because they weren't, well, at least 
folks in, you know, our field and body positive community were not looking up to Gwyneth as their like person to shepherd them into loving their bodies. So just the inherent response was like laughing at her or mocking her, critiquing her, but it wasn't like Gwyneth has let us down, <laughs> which is what happened to Lizzo. So just the inherent, um, and not even a dichotomy, but like how fat black women are treated and how thin white wellness influencers like doing, I won't say worst, but like her detox was ridiculous um, versus Lizzo, who was actually just eating and drinking food. Um, is so starkly, you know, different in conversations about quote diet culture and all those other things. I saw a horrible TikTok up from Bethany is her last name Frankel? Bethany Frankel, one of the Real Housewives of New York City, whose response to that, who has her own eating problems, just putting that out there. But her response to that was like, why are we so worried about how she's promoting eating disorders when, you know, kids don't even know who Gwyneth Paltrow is? Like, it's just for like our generation. And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, kids just don't know that she was in all the Marvel movies and like all the stupid rom-coms from the 90s. But like, they know yeah. who she is. Like, it was mm -hmm. the most twisted response I had ever seen like oh just because she's older like she can't promote eating disorders like I was baffled I put a comment on the video that got some backlash but whatever here we are <laughs> it's yeah it's it is true about the we don't they don't know uh her from movies which is you know like a very interesting transition I find from the rest of us <laughs> but also younger people don't care about that part too and just you know either laugh at her mostly the young folks I know roll their eyes but yes they're very vulnerable to whatever she's promoting and how everybody else follows along with their you know skin talks that Gwyneth you know started ish kind of you know celebrity culture is a just great for all of the examples of all of the things um yeah. but I'm, I'm so glad you did that comparison because I thought it was really powerful and I thought it was just a great example of a lot of the work you talk about. Um, so I would love to kind of come back to like a, I think of it as like an intro question, but I know for a lot of our listeners, when they, they listen to our podcast because they, they genu genuinely want to find food freedom. They don't want to have this, you know, diet culture looming all around them. But when they come to this work, I don't think they understand or know that this will eventually lead to the racial origins of fat phobia and how diet culture is rooted in racism. And I've done a few posts on this and Jenna, I'm not sure. I'm sure you have too, or, and I'll always get people commenting like, this is so wrong. What are you talking about? Why are you talking about race? And I just, with all of the work that you and Sabrina strings and all of these people just paving the way, could you, I would love to hear you respond to that and just kind of a, an, an intro to how diet culture is rooted in racism and how that anti-fatness is also anti-blackness. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you already mentioned Sabrina Strings and Deshaun Harrison. It's another one. If folks haven't heard of them, I totally recommend Belly of the Beast because their work is amazing and they do a great job of breaking down the literal centuries of this. But, you know, I can go back to 1800s um, and more of the eugenics with, you know, um, people may or may not have heard of, you know, 
John Harvey Kellogg of his, you know, favorite flakes and <laughs> those type of folks who were very interested in looking at, you know, really the health of the uh, white race. And, you know, they had like race betterment conferences and stuff like that, which were really eugenic in practice um, and comparing white folks to black and brown folks who were of inherently, you know, less health and like constructing health in a way so that black and brown folks just wouldn't fit in the 1800s. And to them, that meant like thinner and thinner and thinner. And the association with gluttony because of, you know, the ways that black people specifically um, during transatlantic um, and from South Africa to Europe uh, trafficking had gone, you know, they had picked up um, black women who were very fat black women, especially quote, the size of their buttocks um, and decided that that was blackness. And because, you know, the size of folks, you know, let's just label them as like hedonistic and gluttonous and let's decide that whiteness, you know, is thin and like moralistic and, you know, a lot of purity culture in general. So like creating whiteness in supposed just like in juxtaposition to blackness um, was a way that, you know, people could like aspire to whiteness by making themselves thinner which still you know is what's happening so the thinner i get the closer to whiteness um is something that just like it's not just diet culture like that is how things were constructed right so you know it's easy to blame like weight watchers for trying to you know make us thinner or whatever diet intermittent fasting like all of these things and like the giving up um, and like the morality, like I'm just a better, more pure individual, like is really connected to that same like race betterment, you know, stuff that was going on there. And like all of the like people who enjoy food are really bad people. And, you know, I got to say as a, you know, eating disorder dietitian, that's like still embedded a lot within like intuitive eating, you know, people say, oh, you know, the author's Elise and Evelyn um, made the, well, you'll have to help me. Is it fifth or seventh? I don't know, whichever principle. Um, it was like, eat, deal with your feelings without food. I think it was. Yeah. It was uh, okay. without food. And then they change it to cope with your emotions with kindness. So it was like, yeah, it was cope with your, yeah, cope with your emotions without food. And now it's cope. But I've compared the two books, the editions. It's the same. There's, nothing absolutely nothing different except the title it is still all of this like you will be you know a disconnected eater if you're eating for your feelings sometimes it's okay but if it's something that happens often you know more than once and it's a bad thing like all of these like it is clearly the same like like zero pleasure food is biological needs only um that is like in the literal principles of intuitive eating. And so we still see that as dietitians when people get so into intuitive eating and into basically the weeds of trying to still avoid and the fat phobia there. Mm. Thank you for bringing that up. Cause I feel like that comes back to, to that idea of like, I'm morally better because I'm doing it yeah. this way. Right. At the yeah. core. Yeah. When there's, we all know as practitioners, like there's so much nuance to your relationship with food, to your relationship with your body, to all of this. And can we just eat because we want to eat, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, in the book, I, you know, make the connection to like having sex only for procreation, <laughs> um, you know, like it's only for biological needs. And it's like, but no, it's not at, at all. And, but like the idea that there's like this slippery slope from like eating whatever you eat on Tuesday into like this, like pit hole and of like hedonism and gluttony and all of these things, which like only exists because we're creating them to like be inherently black. So it's wild out there, basically. It is. I, I always call social media the wild, wild west, but honestly, our field has become that too to some extent. Oh yeah, right. One thousand like, percent. Nobody can agree on anything anymore, which I think is just like so interesting when you come back to like the core of why we're all doing the work Mm. that we're doing is to help people. Um, Mm. And I find it super frustrating, like the more that I dig into and I've like dumped on Sam recently about how I feel like so lost in the field at the moment. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think like you bring up so many good points and I'm just reading from um, the form that you filled out for us where you said, basically what you just stated, but you've moved away from the Hayes and intuitive eating clinician titles and are doing something a little bit more complex with your clients because you see how these two things have fallen short. Can you kind of share, you know, maybe who would benefit from this different approach to recovery and nutrition just for our listeners that are maybe say thinking to themselves, well, I don't really feel like this would benefit me, or I don't feel like this would benefit me. Like I'm falling somewhere in the middle. What do I do? Mm -hmm. So the parts of intuitive eating that I found were, I'll just say silly for my clients, not across the board, um, was the hyper-focus on doing it correctly, how they were able to go from whatever diet you know, they were on to like the 10 literal principles of intuitive eating and really finding like safety and structure, um, within those. And I was like, that's also not the goal. Like why is like so much over identification and so much like thinking and overthinking and like, what does my body really want? I'm like, this sounds really like, you know, back into preoccupation with like food and body stuff. Um, and then just like generally people who couldn't always eat when they were hungry and stop when they were full, like all of that got to be like the same type of like, well, how full is too full? And what if I eat like one more bite here? Does that make me not intuitive? And I was like, oh no, no, this is, this is wild. This is not helping. Like, how can I actually help you do what you want to do? Because like this framework that I was using. So I say for sure, I was totally into intuitive eating, but then people were asking me questions and then I just realized that it wasn't helping at least the folks I was working with. Um, so, you know, everybody says like, oh, I don't use it. I just make it, you know, personal to the individual. But like, why do you have to say that, you know, you use it at all? Like if you're working with an individual, you know, let's just work with that person in front of us. Sometimes, you know, they have to eat. Oh, I, here's a great example. Like I worked with a, you know, student who was very distressed about quote binge eating, um, because she was eating an entire pizza at night. And I was like, Oh, okay. Tell me more about that. Um, but she wasn't, you know, she was a vet student. She had like a like two hour window in a 24 hour period to eat food, but was very distressed because of this narrative of like intuitive eating. I'm like, Oh, Oh no, this, this is not working. Um, generally yay for you eating an entire pizza. Cause the alternative is starving. So let's just get away and talk about you, this person in front of me. That's yeah. 
that's such a perfect example. I had um like an ER doc, same thing. Like it's not like these docs can be like, excuse me one second. I need to go pull mm-hmm. my snack out because I'm hungry and I need to listen to my body, right? Like they don't yeah. have that ability to do that. But and also so, LOL to like younger version of me as a dietitian giving out information, being like, you should pack snacks in your lab coat. Like I remember giving yeah. that advice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Agreed. Same for those vet students, particularly. Mm -hmm. Jenna, I think my favorite advice, sorry, this is a tangent, but you, you shared it on social. So I'm assuming it's okay to share where you were like, I remember giving someone the advice to eat half a banana. <laughs> like, no, this girl, that's actually where DM'd we're coming me. from, Jessica. Me too. Total this disorder. Girl, the, she found me on Instagram and she DM'd me at, after like I posted that on my story. And she was like, I was the client that you told to eat half a banana. Oh, no. <laughs> like, Can I instant cards and bananas to your house right now? Please? I was going to say, I think you owe her some full bananas. But oh, I mean, we way about our exchanges. I hate exchanges in eating disorder treatment. I don't do them. Um, San Chang was the first person to point out that it's literally Weight Watchers points. Like that's what's happening with our exchanges. And then the half bagel, like the half banana, that's absolutely not, or a half muffin also like if there are big muffins, that's how much or like one exchanges. Top, I'm like, right? yeah, if you're, <laughs> if you're cutting up a muffin that I'm like, that's not what I need you to be doing at all. Oh, well, I would, I love asking this question to any dietitian just because when we say, okay, let's say you're at a party, right? You're at a shindig and someone's like, Jessica, what do you do for a living? What do you say? I'm always interested to ask dietitians this because we know that the public, like if we say like, I'm a dietitian, they go mm-hmm. down a rabbit hole of what they think that is. Do you say mm-hmm. you're a dietitian and then explain, or if you're just like not in the mood to explain to people, do you have like a, a secondary term that you use that kind of just like shuts that shit down? Oh, I say I'm a barista. Like, oh. Oh my God. I love it. You just go total different, mm-hmm. total different occupation. You don't even yep. try to like no, stay in there. Especially like in Uber or Lyft drives. Like we only have so much time here. And if you start asking me questions, I'm never getting out of this car. Uh, but I, I said actually to someone, I'm just a barista. And they like, it was a whole conversation about, it's not just like you were making somebody's day, this, that, and the other. I'm like, I just wanted to not talk to you. Uh yeah, I just make up something different or yeah, entirely. I think I need to start stealing that because I usually mm-hmm. will say I'm a eating disorder counselor because usually people like, unless they know someone with eating disorder personally have one, they'll just be like, okay, and go on. But we well, <laughs> we well know that if we say we're a dietitian, they'll be like, what diet should I do? Or here's everything I ate for the past 72 hours. And it's just, or they're holding whatever's in their plate and be like, Oh, oh, I know I shouldn't eat this. I'm like, I don't, I don't care. I don't, I don't care at all. Mm. Great advice though. You heard it here first on the, what the actual fork podcast, tell people (laughs) that you are a barista. Oh, well, Jessica, I feel like we rapid fired you for like the past 40 minutes. So thank you. Thank you for packing in all of these questions in this timeframe for us. This episode is going to help so many people enlighten so many people, just give so many people a taste of a perspective that 
I'm so happy that we talked about. And where can they find more of that from you? I would love to hear all the details about your book so that all of our listeners can go race to buy it. Um, and where's the best place to continue to consume your content um, and stay connected with you? So the book full title is It's Always Been Ours, Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies, both audiobook, ebook, and uh, online and wherever, hopefully, books are sold, but definitely online, anywhere books are sold. Um, the Instagram is my first and last name, jessicawilson.msrd. I am venturing into the TikToks because I want to know what the 20-year-olds and the 30-year-olds are up to. Uh, so Don't that one is do like- it. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm working on a new creative project with 20 year olds. And I am like, what, what is this like? Uh, So that's by Jessica Wilson. And that's a lot of uh, what folks were interested in that I posted there is more on my like newly found, had no idea neurodivergence over there. Uh, Apparently epilepsy, you know, obviously like you have a hyper excitable brain. Sorry, this tangent, Uh, but nobody talks about what happens between seizures. So like we're, we're chatting about that on TikTok. Um, So Instagram, TikTok book are the primary ways that I would love to hear people. And my actual, my, actually my DMs are on. So if you have rarely, um, but for this year, at least the DMs are on a few questions. That is very brave of you to tell people to go to your DMs. It was for book really, uh, because if people were sharing, like they were reading the book. Makes sense. Yeah. And, or wanted to give feedback that way. I really wanted feedback. So Yeah, the publisher was like, you can leave them all. You don't have to answer them, but, you know. That's amazing. They're open. Well, we will make sure to provide links in the show notes for everything. And we, as much as I kid of stay away from TikTok, because Jen and I talk about TikTok all the time on here (laughs) and how it's like messing with our mental health, but you are very needed on TikTok. Um, And so we'll be (laughs) excited to share your posts. Just thank you so much for being here with us, Jessica. You're welcome. It was great talking to you. Thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of What the Actual Fork Pod. We know there are a lot of pods out there and we are so grateful that you are here listening with us. So if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe, like, share with all of your friends and faves, and don't forget to rate and review and let us know what you want to hear more of. The more we hear from you, the more that we can make these episodes exactly what you want. We would also love to connect with you on Instagram at whatthefork.pod. We promise to continue to bring you the hottest topics, greatest guests, and the most fun you can possibly have fighting diet culture bullshit. We love you, we appreciate you, and we will see you next week for more fun. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.